Hello, and welcome back to Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history without a spot of travel. I'm your host, Larissa. And now, unless you've been living under a rock, uh, you know that Russia has invaded Ukraine and thus travel to my homeland isn't really a good idea. And so no spot of travel. Now, the usual information before we start. I may swear in this episode, and if you are listening on Podcast Addict or Apple Podcast, please leave a review or just rate it. You can also find us on a number of streaming sites, including, but not limited to, Spotify, Google Podcast Breaker, and of course the website wanderingtheedge.net, where you can check out any of the previous episodes and sources. Now, this episode is all about one of the first, and some might even say the first kings of Kiev, Oleg or Helgi. Uh, I will not deign to say his Russified name because it sounds absolutely fucking ridiculous. So, before we begin our journey through the dark ages of Ukrainian history, I want to say that it really was the dark ages. If you consider the dark ages the complete lack of any information, there are like a handful of documents from that time period which prove that Oleg was indeed an actual person. However, his life history was only put down on paper when the chronicler uh, Nestor wrote his primary chronicle about 300 years after Oleg lived. So there's a lot of unknowns about Oleg, but we do know he ruled from Kiev. Now the original primary sources that we have come from Constantinople, which will come up a lot in the second half of this episode, and a letter from an Arab traveler. There's pretty much it. I think there's also some like letters from some nomads, uh, but for some reason, either Oleg didn't really write anything down or they wrote on material that disappeared very quickly. So we're in a bit of a mystery for the majority of Oleg's life. We have brief moments of excitement though, and you know, what else do you really need? So we don't know when Oleg was born. Uh, who his parents were, or even if he was a part of the famous Rurik family, the family that began the Kavan Rus dynasty. We know his name is Scandinavian, from Helgi. Some researchers say it's Halgatil, from the Danish uh, Skjoldung dynasty, while others like Snorri Sturluson, uh, believe he might actually be Helgi the Bold, some son of King, oh God, son of King Hringarigi from Daneland. Now we don't know if Oleg was a part of the Swedish leadership taking over the power structure of Novgorod, or if he was born there and grew up within that power structure. But he became ruler of Novgorod in 879, which is the city in northwest Russia. That was when Rurik died, and Oleg then famously took charge of Rurik's apparently only son, Ihor. The only information we have of this relationship is that they were kin. What kind? 
well, that's obviously speculation. The Yakimiev and the Roskol- Roskolnitsky Chronicles say that Oleg was a Norman prince and Rurik's brother-in-law, while another source says that he's Rurik's nephew. I don't know. I'm honestly leaning towards the brother-in-law theory. Um, I mean, why else would you entrust your kid with, to some stranger? Some historians believe that Oleg actually usurped power from Rurik and held onto Ihor as a hostage of some sort, and that's also why he ruled for so long. Before Ihor got the political and military back him to, well, dethrone him. Either way, the man had power. He came from the Lodoga region as its ruler, moved to Novgorod, probably somehow overthrowing Rurik or marrying into the Rurik family, then down to Smolensk before setting his eyes on Kiev. His exploits at this time seem fairly reminiscent of typical Viking kings. The eastern trade along the Volga-Baltic route was drying up, and for Oleg and the prosperity of his Ladoga Principality, which he initially controlled, was threatened. He needed to trade because the local food resources were small, and they needed funds to buy simple things like, oh, I don't know, bread. And so his eyes began to wander to the ancient pathway that was from the Varangians to the Greeks, so along the Dnipro River, to the Black Sea, and then to Constantinople. And so from Smolensk, he moved his garrison to Lubech, which included warriors of the Varangians, the Chudes, the Slavs, the Marians, and the Krivichians. However, he had one small problem. Cave already had kings the brothers, Askold and Did. Now, both rulers were fairly strong ones. However, Askold apparently converted to Christianity, and that's why there's a church to him and not his brother Did in Cave. And so there were whisperings about opposition from the nobility, and so Oleg saw his opportunity. Now, it's also worth mentioning that there is also a theory out there that Askold was actually the son of Ragnar Lodbrok, Yes, that Ragnar from the show Vikings. And even a relative and nephew to Rudik himself. Anyway, there's even less information about him than Oleg, but he too was powerful. And, well, we actually know less about his brother did than we know about him. And mainly because it was uh, Askold who freed Kiev from Khazar dependence. Now, the Khazars were semi-nomadic Turkish people who, at the time of Oleg's reign, were slowly dissolving their power in the area and would soon disperse throughout Europe. Anyway, another theory was that the Khazar Khaganat was still in control of Kiev when Oleg attacked Askod. Anyway, here's a lengthy quote from the Primary Chronicle about what happened and how it happened, because you know how much I love lengthy quotes from the Primary Chronicle. Quote, he hid his warriors in the boats left some others behind and went forward himself, bearing the child Ihor. He thus came to the foot of the Hungarian hill, and after conce- uh, concealing his troops, he sent messengers to Askot and Did, representing himself as a stranger on his way to Greece on an errand for Oleg and for Ihor, the prince's son, and requesting that they should come forth to greet them as members of their race. Askot and Did straightway came forth. Then all the soldiery jumped out of the boats, and Oleg said to Askold and Did, You are not princes, nor even of princely stock, but I am of princely birth. 
Ihor was then brought forward, and Olek announced that he was the son of Rurik. They killed Askot and Din, and after carrying them to the hill, they buried them there, on the hill now known as Hungarian, where the castle of Olma now stands. Over that tomb, Olma built a church dedicated to St. Nicholas, but Dir's tomb is behind St. Irene's, so in modern parlance. Uh, Askold is buried under Askold's grave, which is now St. Nicholas Church, while Did is actually buried somewhere in the St. Sophia Cathedral area of Central Cave. Now, back to the quote. Oleg set himself up as prince in Cave and declared that it should be the mother of Rus uh, cities. The Varangians, Slavs, and the others who accompanied him were called Rusins. Oleg began to build stalker, uh, stockaded towns and imposed tribute on the Slavs, the Krivichians, and the Marians. He commanded the Novgorod should pay the Varangian tribute to the amount of 300 a year for the preservation of peace. This tribute was paid to the Varangians until the death of Yaroslav. End quote. Anyway, Oleg was now in charge of Kiev and began to expand his empire. First, he started a war with the Drivianians, who would then kill Igor a few decades later, who at that time had to pay heavy tribute to him. Then he conquered the northerners, imposed tribute on them, and forbade them to, from paying tribute to the Khazars, saying, quote, I am their enemy, and you do not need to pay, end quote. Then he went after the uh, Radimiches, uh, asking them, who they pay tribute to? And they answered, the Khazars. And so Oleg said, well, don't give it to the Khazars, just pay me. A kind of request, I guess. Uh, anyway, all of this took about three years, which seems rather quick. But again, we're dealing with some not very reliable sources here, seeing as the next time the primary chronicle takes up Oleg's tale, it's like 22 years later and it's 907. But in that time, he also added the Ulichis and the Tiverians into his empire of Slavic Varangian tribes. Oh, I uh, probably should mention Varangian is the same thing as a Viking, but just that's what they called them. Now, with his rule expanding comes this weird exodus of tribes westward into the Galatian and Volan uh, regions. One of these tribes is also known as the White Croats, who also migrated into the Czech areas and finally into modern-day Croatia. Now, during this expansion, it was said that the Hungarians, who were allies with Oleg, came from a northern Ugric tribe that followed Oleg's path through Kiev, westward into Hungary through the Carpathian Mountains. They were aided in their flight by the pressure of the Pechenek tribe, which would be a thorn in the side of many Cavan rulers. There's another theory out there, see, Oleg's life is just full of theories, that suggests another powerful ally, the Moravians, which is in modern Czech Republic. Anyway, this theory is based on some idea that Oleg sent his son of unknown name to Moravia to keep him safe from Ehod's power grab. Is this true? No clue. I don't own a time machine. Anyway, having moved the capital of his empire to Kiev, he left some of his noble allies in the tribal uh, regions, removed Ehud from state affairs by marrying him off and giving him some adventures, and then turned to the most powerful force of medieval Europe, the Byzantine fucking empire. 
Now, this wasn't the first time Kiev looked to take on Byzantium, a.k.a. Constantinople, a.k.a. Uh, Istanbul. The first attack was in 860, and it was actually made by Askold and Did. On June 18, 860, a fleet of about 200 Rus vessels sailed into the Bosphorus and pillaged Constantinople. The Byzantine army was a bit surprised, mainly because they were waging their own war with the Arabs. And so the people of Constantinople prayed and received a miracle of the Virgin Mary and something, something, and the Rus went away and Askold became a Christian and Ukrainians somehow got a religious festival out of all of this. I quite honestly don't understand the full timeline of what happened. And so we'll have to probably do a separate episode. See, look how well curiosity works or uh, kills the cat, one or the other. Anyway, the cave Byzantine relations of the time were complex, to say the least, both friendly and hostile. After that 860 attack, for example, there were two Rus embassies that came to Constantinople. And some, according to a letter from Patriarch Photius in 867, they were baptized into the Christian religion, eventually becoming very good friends. This didn't really last when, in about 874, there was another Rus raid, and a peace was again made with the, quote, most unconquerable and most impious people of the Rus, quote. Yep, yep, makes sense. Now, this new treaty brought economic trade flow, and so why would Oleg attack Kiev's ally? Don't know. Uh, some historians think it's because of his Viking ways, you know, the raiding and such while others think it was a dwindling of Oleg's trade with the East that led him to the attack, the biggest economic powerhouse in the area. While still others think he did it because he didn't want to pay tribute to Constantinople anymore. An anonymous Hungarian chronicle from the 13th century states that Byzantium, apparently taking advantage of a weakened cave, made them pay a tribute to the Ugrians, who I guess were allied with Byzantium, and who would then give that tribute over to Byzantium. Why? Well, it's because Byzantium was also in a war with the Arabs over Asia Minor, and there was also rebellion that needed to be squashed by Andronokos... I can't say this Greek name. Andronikos Duka. I did it. Anyway, Oleg knew all of this and thought, fuck it, I'm not paying shit and we'll raid this holy kingdom for a better peace deal. And so in 908, Oleg took about 2,000 of his vessels and set sail from Kiev down in the Dnipro into the Black Sea coast via Cape Ermine and Mesembria, which is now in Bulgaria. Then by the Salmedesis, uh, sure, which is along the Turkish side of the Black Sea coast, then into the, oh lordy, Romeli Feneri, which is the Bosphorus Strait's entrance into, Con- into well, Constantinople, Istanbul, whatever, and then into An- oh God, Anadolu Kavagi, which is a coastal village. This would be the peak of Oleg's historical impact. Ukrainian culture is fascinating, isn't it? The food, the music, the dance, the food, the clothing, the art. Did I mention the food? And especially the history. It's something that doesn't get the attention it deserves. Something else that doesn't get enough attention in our culture is the history of the Eastern Front of the Second World War. 
a war fought largely on Ukrainian soil, a war that swallowed up tens of millions of people in many countries, battles that dwarfed D-Day and the Battle of the Bulge, a war that redrew the world's borders, and a war that echoes in Ukraine right now. I'm Scott Bray, author, honorary Ukrainian, and podcaster of Beyond Barbarossa, first English-language podcast in the world that focuses on the Eastern Front of World War II. Every episode, I go deep into the events as they unfolded eight decades ago. Regularly, guests join to share their expert knowledge and reflections on the war. So, if you're interested in learning more about history, won't you join me for this in-depth tour of the biggest part of the war that shaped the world we inhabit today? You can find Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting platform. And, since you're listening to Wandering the Edge, I know you can spell Barbarossa. Here is how the Primary Chronicle describes Oleg's adventure to Constantinople. And yes, it's another long-ass quote. Quote, He took with him a multitude of Varangians, Slavs, Trudes, Kravichians, Mer- uh, Marians, Polesians, uh, Severians, Serevlianans, Radimichians, Croats, Delubians, and Tversians, who were pagans. All these tribes are known as Great Scythia by the Greeks. With this entire force, Oleg sailed forth by horse, sallied forth by horse and by ship, and the number of his vessels was 2,000. He arrived before Tsargad, or Constantinople, but the Greeks fortified the strait and closed up the city. Oleg disembarked upon the shore and ordered his soldiery to breach the ships. They waged war around the city and accomplished much slaughter of the Greeks. They also destroyed many palaces and burnt the churches. Of the prisoners they captured, some were beheaded, some they tortured, some they shot, and still others they cast into the sea. The Russes inflicted many other woes upon the Greeks after the usual manner of soldiers. Oleg commanded his warriors to make wheels which they attached to the ships, and when the wind was favorable they spread the sails and bore down upon the city with from the open countryside. When the Greeks beheld this they were afraid, and sending messengers to Oleg, They implored him not to destroy the city and offered to submit to such tribute as he should desire. Thus Oleg halted his troops. The Greeks then brought out to him food and wine, but he would not accept it, for it was mixed with poison. Then the Greeks were terrified and explained, This is not Oleg, but Saint Demetrius, whom God has sent upon us. So Oleg demanded that they pay tribute for his 2,000 ships at a rate of 12 hryvni per man, with 40 men reckoned to a ship. The Greeks assented to these terms and prayed for peace, lest Oleg should conquer the land of Greece. Retiring thus a short distance from the city, Oleg concluded a peace with the Greek emperors Leo and Alexander, and sent into the city with them Karl Farulf Vormund Hrola and Steinvith, with instructions to receive the tribute. The Greeks promised to satisfy, satisfy their requirements. Oleg demanded that they should give to the troops on the 2,000, um, 2000 ships 12 hryvni per bench and pay in addition the sums required for the various Rusin cities. First Kiev, then Chernihiv, Pereslavsk, Polotsk, Rostov, Lyubech, and the other towns. In these cities live great princes subject to Oleg. End quote. So, a couple of things about this battle. Now, historians are basically amazed that 
the Byzantians didn't use Greek fire against the Rusin army. But I think that's because they used a whole crapload of it during their attack to take back Carthage. Ah, Carthage, the bane of ancient Rome. Anyway, it was taken by the Arabs and the Byzantines needed it back. So they waged a war for it from 647, uh, sorry, 674 to 678. Secondly, Oleg's army of 2,000 ships is probably an exaggeration because that would mean he would have more than 80,000 soldiers, men and women combined, probably since Vikings allowed women to fight. Could Oleg reach this number at the beginning of the 9th, 9th century? Probably not. But we're also assuming that all the ships were actually full. I mean, it was probably a large force any way you look at it. It had to withstand a campaign against one of the most powerful empires in the world at the time. Third, interesting fact about that quote was the Byzantine use of naval defenses, namely the iron chain that could block the entrance of the Golden Horn Bay, which is the sea gate of the city of Istanbul. Well, now Istanbul, before Constantinople, before that, you, you know what I mean. Now, they had two towers on separate shores of the bay that had a big-ass chain linking them. Normally, it would just lay at the bottom of the bay, but in times of need, they would stretch it out and block the entrance to their capital city. Smart peoples. And that's why Ola used those convertible ships. Fourth, that little bit about Olaf being offered poison wine is actually probably just an added flair, as it is often used in other Germanic uh, Scandinavian tales, like King Gori during his travel in Biadamia. I don't know, Google it, because I honestly don't know where that is. Fifth, and last weird bit, was that the city of Novgorod wasn't mentioned in the tribute giving that Olaf managed to gain from Byzantium. Was it because the city was out of favor by then? Did Oleg understand that cave and its surrounding area was to be the empire, while Novgorod was to become a more provincial town? Were they not involved in this Byzantium raid, and that's why they didn't get tribute? I honestly have no idea. Now, the 907 treaty was a preliminary one that Oleg was awarded, but on September the 2nd, 911, hmm, weird, huh? Anyway, sorry, a detailed alliance was actually signed. Now, this treaty uh, exempted Rus traders from custom duties, which was important, and even gave them a special region of the city to live in called the St. Mama's Quarter, also important because they didn't have to pay for rent for six months. This financial security for Kiev was assured. Kiev would trade them furs, wax, honey, and slaves while getting gold, silk, fruit, and any all the, uh, all the other fineries in exchange. It is also included this little tidbit that whenever the uh, Byzantium Imperial Army was in need, the Rusins would come to their aid. This might have been the beginning of the Viking Guard in Imperial Byzantium court. Both emperors Leo and Alexander then made peace with Oleg, agreeing to it by kissing the cross and inviting Oleg and his men to swear their oaths in the same manner. Some of Oleg's men kissed the cross, meaning they were Christian while others swore on their weapons and by their gods Perun, the head of god, and Volos, the god of cattle and wealth. Oleg's representatives included Karl, Ingjald, Farulf, Vermund, Hrolaf, Gunnar, Harald, Karni, Frithlith, Hrawar, Angeter, Trond, 
Lithuf Fast and Steinfith. See, I managed to say it all with a weird accent. Anyway, also important in this treaty was this little tidbit. Quote, whatever so Rus kills a Christian or whoever so Christian kills a Rus shall die since he has committed murder. End quote. Basically, what this means legally in both societies was that they were treated as equals. Because back then, if you were of an unliked peoples, you wouldn't be worth the same amount of as a citizen of that particular empire. On a broader note, Oleg's success against Constantinople happened the same year that another powerful Viking led a successful campaign another, against another powerful kingdom, the famous Dane Rollo, or Rolf, the Hawkeye from the Vikings miniseries, when he led his successful campaign against Charles the Simple in France. It was a good year to be a Viking, apparently. Also, before we move on again, I also want to mention that Kiev attacked Constantinople two more times, in 941 by Ihor, Oleg's successor, which was recorded by Greek, Russian, Latin, Arab, and even sources in Madrid, and in 1043 when Voldemir, the son of Yaroslav the Wise, attacked it again. But back to Oleg. And another important empire he decided to go up against, the Khazar Khaganat. Now, this empire was formed in the middle of the 7th century in the steps between the Caspian and Azov Seas, and it was a loose federation of nomadic Turkic tribes with a religion that was close to Judaism. The capital was first in Semender in Dagestan, but then moved to Etil in the Volga River lower reaches. It was dependent on herds and thus the nomadic lifestyle, but because they were nomadic, their travels were constantly threatening their Slavic neighbors. And while it wasn't until Sviatoslav, so Ihor's son, that their threat was neutralized, Oleg had an immediate threat, and he had to deal with it. Now, the threat was actually twofold. First, the Khazar raids were unsettling the Slavic tribes who were now constantly on the move, and these migrations threatened Oleg's newly formed empire's stability especially when local enemies moved against each other and included the other tribes in their battles. For example, those Hungarians who made their way into modern-day Hungary were tributaries of the Khazars, but were also enemies of the Pechenegs, but allies of the Bulgarians. So everyone got involved in the conflicts that were happening around Oleg's cave. The other threat was economic. Yes, even back then, money ruled the world. Having now taken control over the varanging north-south trade route of the Dnipro to the Mediterranean, Oleg came face-to-face -face with the Khazad-controlled um, east-west trade route from the lower Volga to the Caspian. This trade route controlled the Arab silver that flowed into Europe, and Oleg wanted to control it himself. So there's a bit of a confusion as to what exactly happened. It looks like there was an initial attempt by Oleg in 909 to send about 16 boats with about 650 warriors to break through the Khazar lands into the Caspian Sea, and they did manage to burn the merchant fleet stationed there. A year later, they occupied the city of Sari. This managed to weaken the Khazar Khaganate. However, internal politics were also important as there was a power struggle within the Khaganat itself on who would be its leader and which direction it would look to, Byzantium, Romania, or independence for everyone and everything. Now comes the years 912 to 913, 
and the death of Oleg. There are two dominating theories as to how this happened. The first deals with the Khazars, when in 912, Oleg led a fleet of 500 ships into the Azov Sea through the Kedge Strait. Ah, uh, fuck Putin, by the way. I don't know if I mentioned that one yet today. Uh, which, leading about 20,000 soldiers into the Don River, and then to the Volga and into the Caspian Sea. But this was a ruse, and the Khazar leader, Pesach, took that opportunity to capture three Byzantium cities because the Byzantine Emperor Romulus, uh, the first Lekabenus, was persecuting the Jewish Khazars at this time and forced Oleg to start a war with Byzantium or else his fleet would be massacred. Oleg agreed, set sail to attack Byzantium, but his fleet was burned by Greek fire and he sailed to Persia or Thrace and died there. Now, the origins of this theory is from the, uh, Christ, you know, German is hard, from the Schechter uh, letter, which was a letter found among several Jewish correspondences in Cairo from the Dark Ages as it was found and donated to Cambridge University in 898 by Solomon Schechter. Schechter? I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, Most of it is unreadable. And only like two folders of text remain, which is why it's difficult to identify its accuracy and origins. Anyway, one of these letters includes correspondence with an unknown Khazad to some official Jewish dignitary. The main problem with this theory is the timing. There was another Rus attack on Constantinople in 944, but this was allegedly led by Ehud. Plus, I think by this time point, like Oleg would have been ancient if it was him who led the attack in 944. Additionally, confirmation of the letter's authenticity through archaeological finds is still not possible. One historian does suggest that if we re-examine the entirety of the cave in the Rus chronology, then the letter is consistent with other Rusin sources and claims that there was an internal conflict between Oleg and Ihor, which Oleg lost, or that there was a lost generation between Oleg and Ihor. As in, Ihor wasn't Uruk's son, but maybe like a great-grandson or a grandson. And everything that happened in this letter took place during that time. Whatever the theories, Oleg did manage to decline the strength of the Khazar Khaganat along the shores of the Caspian Seas, which allowed Ihor to have several raids in the area. Now, here is the legendary death of Oleg, as contained in the Primary Chronicle. Will I be quoting it at length? Yes. Yes, I will be. And here we go. Quote, Now autumn came, and Oleg bethought him of his horse that he had caused to be well fed, yet had never mounted. For on one occasion he had made inquiry of a wander-working magicians as to the ultimate cause of his death. One magician replied, O prince, it is from the steed which you love and on which you ride that you shall meet your death. Oleg then reflected and determined never to mount his horse or even to look upon it again. So he gave command that the horse should be properly fed, but never led into his presence. He thus let several years pass until he attacked the Greeks. After he returned to Kiev, four years elapsed, but in the fifth, he thought of the horse through which the magicians had foretold that he should meet his death. He thus summoned his senior squire and inquired as to the whereabouts of the horse which he had ordered to be fed and well cared for. The squire answered that he was dead, 
Moloch laughed and mocked the magician, exclaiming, Soothsayer tells, Soothsayers tell untruths, and their words are not but falsehood. This horse is dead, but I am still alive. Then he commanded that the horse should be saddled. Let me see his bones, he said. He rode to the place where the bare bones and skull lay. Dismounting from his horse, he laughed and remarked, So I was supposed to receive my death from the skull, and he stomped upon the skull with his foot. But a serpent crawled forth from it and bit him in the foot, so that in consequence he sickened and died. Quote. It is because of this episode that Olach is actually now known as the prophet, which is pretty ironic, but whatever. Now, the primary chronicle tells us this happened in 912, but many believe it probably happened around 922. The primary chronicle tells us this happened in um, Szczekowice, which is in cave these days, I think. But the Novhorod first chronicle indicates this occurred in 922 around the area of Ladoga, where he was apparently buried. Some others say this happened on his way back from a raid, but that Nestor decided to choose the most exciting death and the one that was most harmonious with actual events. There is a theory out there that Ehud had a success, successful coup in Kiev against Oleg's Caspian Sea failure in opposition to Oleg's tolerance towards Christianity and in about 912 exiled Oleg back to Lagoda where he died from that snake bike. Now, there is another Norse legend about a hero dying from a snake bite, Orvar Olur, and his tale is very similar to Oleg's. It was foretold when he was young that his horse would kill him, and so he killed his horse, buried it, and left his house to never, to re never to return. But after some adventures, he became homesick, and so he came back, where he tripped over his horse's skull and was bitten by a snake. See, our Ukrainian Vikings share a bit uh, uh, more than just, you know, hotness with the Norse Vikings. Now, no matter how Olaf died, his reign was an influential one. And here I will allow Paul Robert Mogochi to explain. His reign, quote, begins the era of the growth and expansion of the Kievan realm that was to last for approximately a century until 972. During this first stage of Kievan Rus history, Helgi Oleg and his three successors, Ingvar Ihor, Olga, Helga Olga, or sorry, Helga Olga, and um, Svenold Sviatoslav, faced two basic challenges. To acquire control of the disparate East Slavic and Finnic tribes who lived along trade routes the Varangians hoped to control, and two, to establish the favorable relationship with the nomads of the steppe and a positive military and economic position vis-a-vis -vis the two strongest powers in the region, Byzantium and Khazaria. By the time of Oleg's death in 912, he had succeeded in expanding the sphere of Kiev and Rus over an extreme over an extensive territory and in neutralizing the most powerful states in the region, Khazaria and Byzantium, end quote. Oleg was Kievan Rus's first great leader, possibly even more of an emperor of an empire. Whatever you want to call him, prince, king, emperor, warrior, prophet, his legacy and place in Ukrainian history is cemented as the first true leader of Kiev who managed to unite, defend, and expand. 
but you will no longer be expanding this episode because it is over. And now because Russia has decided to invade Ukraine, we need your help. Please donate to any humanitarian aid relief you can. I've also posted on my website some suggestions. Please take up the call and ask your local representative to help Ukraine send us weapons, get NATO um, in there and help us kick out the Russians. Please remember to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at WanderEdgeUkraine. Check out our website, WanderingTheEdge.net, for source information and any other interesting extras. And if you're listening to me on Apple Podcasts or Podcast Addict, please rate and review and leave a comment about anything. Even any weird historical tidbit you have about your cultural peoples. And if you're listening on all the other streaming sites, thank you very much. And as always, happy wanderings, my friends, and Slava Ukraini, Hiroyam Slava.